What was the sin of Sodom? It might seem obvious, but the answer to this question has actually become a controversial topic over the past few years. We'll sort it all out today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a new Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor. I'm a minister and a storyteller. And you are a storyteller. Every single person who's listening to this podcast is a storyteller, because every single life tells a story. God has created this world to be understood through story. God communicates in the Bible through stories, most of them true stories, but sometimes God uses parables. That's because all humans have this unique ability to understand a story, whether it's true or not. So God uses parables to help us understand deeper truths that sometimes aren't getting through our heads, as well as whenever they're just stated literally. Uh, But they can sometimes be more effectively conveyed through a story. And Ezekiel 16, this is a parable, a story, about Israel's history. So today we continue the story of the adulterous wife that we started in the previous lesson. And if you didn't listen to it, you probably don't have to go back and listen to it to be able to follow along today. We are continuing that story, but that story, it took a turn here in this last part of the chapter, and it's covering a slightly different topic. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. We've been in Ezekiel for 24 lessons now. This is part 25 of our Ezekiel series. And I try to create these lessons as individualized as I can, because uh, I, I do it that way so you don't have to go back and listen to 24 other episodes before you can listen to this one. I try to craft them so they can you can kind of pick up the baton and run with it no matter where you start in this study of Ezekiel, even if you start in the middle of a chapter like right here. But let me explain where we left the baton last time, just in case you're new or if you need a refresher. So Ezekiel 16, it's one of the most sexual chapters of the Bible, actually. (laughs) Outside of, you know, the Song of Solomon, uh, it's probably this chapter right here. It's very scatological. I gave the last lesson an R rating, um, and I might have to give it to this one, too. I'm not sure yet. Um, I'll give you a warning if I do. But, But God tells the story of his wife in this chapter, his wife who he gave everything to. And so in the parable, the wife is Israel. And the marriage covenant is analogous to the Mosaic covenant. God speaks of this marriage and how after he lavished his wife with all these blessings, he saved her life, he gave her anything and everything she ever needed, that then she started cheating on him with other men. And the adultery, that was analogous to worshiping foreign gods and idols and relying on other nations to protect her rather than God himself. So that's what we went through last time. And then this time, God is continuing that metaphor, but he, he shifts his focus away from the adultery. Instead, he's going to talk about the family of this woman, which is Israel. He's going to talk about Israel's lineage in, this part, of the, in part of this chapter. Um, we all know that Israel came from Abraham, but where did Abraham come from? You know, that's what God's going to discuss in this section today. And as we wrap up, we're going to deal with the question— of what the sin of Sodom was. Now that seems like an easy one, right? It, it, it's sodomy. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah 
It was the rampant homosexuality that was going on in those cities. In the famous story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible, that's the only thing that you really seem to have focused on quite a bit. But Ezekiel 16, it actually mentions some other things that don't come up in the Genesis account. So now we have this whole controversy nowadays where some people want to say that the Genesis stuff doesn't really matter because we just have to go with what Ezekiel says. And then this becomes a chapter that some people actually try to use to say that homosexuality is not even a sin at all because Ezekiel didn't address it. So we're going to get into that topic today uh, after the mailbag section. (laughs) Yes, I finally have a mailbag for you today, too. So grab your Bible. Let's turn to Ezekiel 16. I've got a wild one for you today. And as we're getting into it, I'll mention why it's been a few weeks since I continued on the podcast. Uh, So I just moved here. So this episode will be coming out at the end of January. I moved at the end of December. And, uh, you know, for a few weeks, I had actually pre-recorded some episodes and I had been trying to stay several weeks ahead on my on my episode recordings. And they caught up to me. (laughs) I thought I'd get back to recording before um, I ran out of them, but it didn't happen. So uh, some other things happened, too. I smashed my finger on I was putting together a bed frame a few weeks ago and I kind of injured myself, had to go to the hospital. That just slowed everything in my life down for a week or two. And I had to, that missed some work and I had to make up some work. So anyway, anyway, that's why if you're someone who listens week to week, you notice that I didn't come back for a couple weeks. And that's because I was just, I was catching up on life and I'm still in the midst of unpacking. Like as soon as I get this episode done right now, I'm going to start to painting a little bit. So uh, I'm just I'm just behind or just I don't I don't want to say behind. I'm moving along at the pace things are just going to happen. And that might mean the podcast gets a little bit delayed. So anyway, it, you know, if you're if you're listening weeks or months or years later, you don't care about all this. So <laughs> let me just get into it. Um, verses 44 through 52. That's where we're picking up here in Ezekiel 16. We're covering over 20 verses today. So I'm going to read a chunk of them right here. Uh, Let me start start with 44 here. Behold, everyone who uses Proverbs will use this proverb about you, like mother, like daughter. You are the daughter of your mother, who loathed her husband and her children, and you are the sister of your sisters, who loathed their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite, and your father an Amorite. So let me me stop there for a minute. It's um, talking—this is God talking, don't forget—but God's talking about the family tree of Israel— so we're going back to the book of Genesis right here. And, and most of you probably know that the nation of Israel, it came from Abraham. But also many people don't realize uh, there's other nations whose origins are talked about uh, in the book of Genesis. And, and some of them are really closely related to Abraham. Abraham's other son, Ishmael, his descendants became Saudi Arabia. Abraham's grandson, Esau, started the Edomites, who you hear about all throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Abraham's nephew, Lot, he started the Moabites and the Ammonites. And right here, we see some other ancient nations that are um, spoken of here in Ezekiel 16. Uh, It talks about the Hittites and the Amorites. Okay, so my first thought when I hear that, that it says Israel came from them, my first thought is that perhaps Abraham's parents were a Hittite and an Amorite. Most commentaries that I was checking out on this, um, they say that was probably not the case. So another thought is that the people who founded the city of Jerusalem, that they were Amorites and Hittites. And that's possible. Um, 
because we don't know who first established Jerusalem. Uh, it wasn't just a city that Israel created. It was it was established. Um, I'm not sure exactly when. It was an established city in the Old Testament um, until the time of King David. I, so he took the city in 2 Samuel 5. And I, somewhere after that, he made it Israel's capital. Um, but you also see Jerusalem mentioned in the book of Judges and perhaps in other places too. And so anyway, that could be what God's talking about here. Maybe it was started by the Hittites and the Amorites because so much of Ezekiel 16 is directed specifically to Jerusalem. Uh, my take is that that's, it probably means that those are the people who founded it. So anyway, God's point in bringing that up, he's saying to Israel of Ezekiel's day, he's saying that the apple has not fallen as far from the tree as the inhabitants of Jerusalem probably thought. They thought of themselves as superior and better than the nations around them. What God is going to point out in this chapter is that they're really acting no better than the Gentiles. Even though that you know these were the Jews, they had the word of God. Um, but, but this is how God says that he sees them in verse 46. And your elder sister is Samaria, who lived with her daughters to the north of you. And your younger sister, who lived to the south of you, is Sodom with her daughters. Not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, within a very little time you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. So uh, let me stop there again. God just said something really <laughs> kind of hard to swallow right here to Israel. He says, you are so evil, you are as bad as Samaria and Sodom. So, I mean, that's a verbal beatdown right there. <laughs> let's, let's take these just one at a time here. Samaria, that was the northern tribe of Israel, okay, the 10 northern tribes. Well, their capital was Samaria. They had been wiped out about 100 years before Ezekiel's time. They had been punished for their wickedness. They were full of idolatry. God had dealt with them. The southern part of Israel, so that's the only tribes that are left at this point. Um, they're, I mean, they're all that's left of Israel, period. So they should have learned a lesson from what happened to those northern tribes, to Samaria. But God is saying now, you're really no better than Samaria. In fact, God is saying, you're worse. But it doesn't stop there. God says, you're worse than Sodom. And pretty much everybody knows about Sodom and Gomorrah. They got their story in Genesis 18 and 19. God told Abraham he's going to wipe the cities out. It's going to be really dramatic. He's going to rain down fire and brimstone. He's going to pulverize the cities. Abraham's like, God, that sounds a little bit harsh. He says, God, if we could find five righteous people down there, would you spare the cities? And God, you know, he thinks about it. He says, okay, sure. I don't, when I say he thinks about it, I mean, it was kind of a funny little exchange he had with, with Abraham. But, but anyway, God, God agreed to those terms. He said, if, if you can find five, then I won't destroy the cities. They, they go down and check it out. There's not even five. He confirmed this because God sent a couple of angels down to Sodom and Gomorrah, said, check it out. Can you find five righteous people? These cities were so bad, he could, they could not find five righteous people down there. The angels went and checked it out. They, you know, they looked like men as angels tend to do in the Bible. They're just indistinguishable. When you glance at them, they're just indistinguishable from regular people. That's why uh, Hebrews, it tells us that we might have encountered angels before unaware. These men in Sodom were unaware, but, but it, they intend. So, okay, this, this is going to be a little bit <laughs> PG-13 or R right here, because I'm telling the story of what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, just, so you're aware if you got kids around or something, I'm, you know, I want to just give you that warning. You might have to pause it until later. Um, but anyway, the men in Sodom, when they saw these angels, they intended to rape these angels. It was going to be a homosexual gang rape. 
So the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, it has come to be understood as homosexuality. And, um, and I'm going to deal with this in a big part here towards the end of the lesson today. So we're going to come back to this idea later. I'm going to put a pin in it for now. We're going to come back to this idea later. Was that really the sin of Sodom? So Ezekiel, uh, let's pick up here in 16, verse 48. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. So God does not mention the homosexuality here as one of Sodom's sins. It doesn't mean it wasn't one of the city's sins, <laughs> but this is kind of a glaring omission, you know, when you think about it. And this is like one of those dog that doesn't bark kind of omissions. You would expect to see it listen. Okay, you'd expect to see that dog barking. If you're talking about all the stuff Sodom did wrong, you would expect the homosexual gang rape to make it in the list. Instead, it's saying that their guilt was pride that they had a lot of abundance of possessions, but that they did not take care of the poor in their city. And it makes kind of a vague reference to abominations. So Ezekiel is focusing more on the social aspects of Sodom's culture than the sexual ones. Now, does that mean that Sodom didn't have sexual crimes as, in, as well in God's sight? Again, I'm going to talk about that at the end of the program. If that's what you're really here for, if you want to skip ahead, you know, I, I try to timestamp these lessons so you can get straight to those parts if that's what you're looking for. But for right now, I'm going to just keep reading at verse 51. God says, Samaria has not committed half your sins. You have committed more abominations than they, and have made your sisters appear righteous by all the abominations that you have committed. Bear your disgrace, you also, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters, because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they. They are more in the right than you. So be ashamed, you also, and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. So now God says, you are twice as bad as Samaria. Like, you thought you were better than Samaria? You thought I preferred you since I destroyed them and let you live? Well, I mean, up until 100 years ago, the southern kingdom, it had been more moral, morally righteous than the northern kingdom. But it's really went down, downhill over the past hundred years or so. They've had a run of bad leaders, bad kings, like, um, like Manasseh. And so now they're, it says they're twice as bad as Samaria was. So um, to try to explain this in modern terms, I'm going to use an example from America. I'm not saying that this is something uniquely American whenever I use this as an example, okay? I'm, what I'm going to use as an example, you could probably say it about any nation. I just happen to be in America that's where I live. So it's easier for me to come up with an example from, from here. As I, so let me just give you a modern example or try to put this story kind of in modern terms. We have a tendency as Americans that we tend to think we're so much more superior than other countries, right? We, we say things like, oh man, we're so much better than China with their communism or Mexico with their drugs and their crime or Russia with all of its corruption, you know, we say stuff like that, and it's because we look at the bad things about those countries, and we compare them with the best things about us. I mean, yeah, the murder rate in Mexico is really bad. But on the other hand, how many babies do we kill in abortion each year? It's probably more than Mexico does. And hey, it's all murder in God's sight. 
China has a pretty high body count too. I mean, their, their communism has killed millions. They literally have concentration camps going on right now over in China. But on the other hand, they don't allow gay marriage over there. They don't produce as much pornography as we do. I mean, nobody produces more pornography than the United States. And we might not be as corrupt as Russia, <laughs> or maybe we are, you know, to be honest. And, and if you look over at Russia, they don't have the drug problems that we have. You know, people were throwing a fit about how that Brittany Griner lady, she was like sentenced to 10 years for a drug charge because she got caught trafficking drugs into Russia. And people said, oh, man, that's so extreme and radical and outrageous to charge someone 10 years for, for, for drug trafficking. That's a very normal sentence for drug trafficking over there in Russia. But what she did in America, it wouldn't even be prosecuted most of the time over here in America. So Russia, they don't mess around when it comes to drugs. But they have a lot fewer citizens dying of drug overdoses over there because they take that issue a lot more seriously. So I'm like, why do we hate on Russia over that? But then we, in our own country, it's like nobody seems to care about how much fentanyl is coming in across our border. If, if the goal is to save lives, the Russian drug laws, they make a lot more sense to me. And I, I'm not saying that all of Russia is just okay. I'm not trying to defend Russia. I'm not saying Russia is better than America. I'm not saying they're better or worse than China or Mexico. What I'm saying here is I don't know. I'm saying that's up to God. But we shouldn't just get cocky and like assume that we're better than everyone else around. Um, <laughs> we might want to be careful about calling ourselves a Christian nation, considering some of the stuff that our country does. Like I remember it was like 10 years ago and President Barack Obama said, America is not a Christian nation. And I was kind of upset about that. A lot of Christians were upset about that. But, you know, in the 10 years since then, I don't know if I want to call us a Christian nation either, considering all the immoral things that our country is doing. I don't, I don't think I want to stick Christian as a label on that. I mean, sure, we export more Bibles than anyone else, but we also seem to export more immorality across the world. Like the Muslim nations, they look at us and they shake their heads in disgust because they see what's coming out of Hollywood here in our country. Now, if, you know, what American in this, you know, who do you know who would ever compare themselves with a Middle Eastern country and wish that we were more like them? I don't think any American would ever do that. All we do is, you know, we point out their degradation of women, which is a bad thing, of course. But, you know, we're, we're so offended by what they do, how they treat women over in a lot of Middle Eastern countries. Don't let them drive cars or anything like that. You know, we're shocked at that, but they're shocked at us over what we allow, over what we promote over here in America. It offends their sensibilities. And they're not even Christian countries. They, you know, they follow Allah. And that's what God is saying to Israel here in this passage. That, okay, to bring it back to what he's saying in Ezekiel 16, he says, you think you're better than Sodom and Samaria? God says, they're more in the right than you. I mean, that's a direct quote from this chapter. He says, they are more in the right than you. So all I'm saying to us is, <laughs> let's be careful about assuming too much. All right, I'm going to read a, a, a big chunk of verses here. Starting at verse 53, I'm going to read through verse 58. God says, I will restore their fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters, and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters. And I will restore your own fortunes in their midst, that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all that you have done, becoming a consolation to them. As for your sisters... 
Sodom and her daughters shall return to their former state, and Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former state, and you and your daughters shall return to your former state. Was not your sister Sodom a byword in your mouth in the day of your pride, before your wickedness was uncovered? Now you have become an object of reproach for the daughters of Syria, and all those around her, and for the daughters of the Philistines, those all around who despise you. You bear the penalty of your lewdness and your abominations, declares the Lord. So God is telling Israel, I need to resurrect Sodom and Samaria and let them see what happens to you. And God's not seriously going to do that, of course. God's kind of making up a scenario here to explain why he's destroying this country. You know, it's kind of more like he's saying, if I don't destroy you for your sins, Jerusalem, I want to need to bring them back from the dead just to be fair. So he's telling them, you deserve what they got even more than they did. So you can be sure that you're going to get what they got too. It it reminds me of this popular saying nowadays. um, And usually it's attributed to Billy Graham. I think it was actually Billy Graham's wife, uh, Ruth, who said it. um, But this this saying that she had said one time, if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, I don't know if you've heard that phrase before. Um, and I've never been a big fan of that phrase. Like, <laughs> I just don't like to say that God would have to apologize to anybody. Um, so it's not really an expression that I would ever say. But but anyway, that is actually what God is saying to Jerusalem right here. Like he's saying, if he doesn't judge Jerusalem now, then he basically owes Sodom an apology. Now, some have posited that this chapter it is that, they, that it is saying that God's going to resurrect Sodom someday, like that it's an actual prophecy that that's going to happen. Perhaps when Jesus is on the throne of the world, you know, millennial kingdom type of stuff. So they say that because um, I think there's another prophecy that Samaria is said to be resurrected in the future. Anyway, I don't, I don't take it that way. I don't think that that's literally what God is saying he's going to do. I take it the way, like what I've already been explaining to you, that God is speaking hypothetically right here, He's saying, you guys are so evil and sinful that I have to judge you in order to be fair to these nations that have come before. So, um, you know, Samaria, you know, it may well be resurrected someday because it's a part of Israel. Israel's going to be capital of the world someday in the millennial kingdom. You know, this is all prophecy stuff. And so Samaria was part of that. I mean, they were a nation of the 10 northern tribes. So... Samaria, the city, may be resurrected if God wants to give Sodom a do-over as well. You know, that's, that's up to him. It might happen, it might not. Um, I just don't think that's what this chapter of Ezekiel is trying to say. So, I think that covers that section. Let's look at the last set of verses today. And I'm just going to say, before I read them, uh, this, I want to point something out. You know, if you've been following along with this, Ezekiel has been a really negative book right? There's not very many rays of sunshine in this book. In this chapter that we've been in for the past couple lessons, like it might be the most negative one of all. I would say there's only been one positive section so far in Ezekiel. It was at the end of chapter 11. That was where we capped off. There was that massive four chapter vision of doom and gloom. Okay. That was chapters eight through 11. And, and those were really the low point of the book so far. And yet that big vision, it ended with the most hopeful message that this book has had yet. And then we got to chapter 16. And I mean, this is like the angriest that God has been the whole time in the book. It's been like, it's the most raw chapter so far. 
and it ends with the most positive words that you've read so far in the book. So I just want to point that out here before I read them, the last four verses of this chapter. Like after the two gloomiest portions of Ezekiel, they both end with the most positive hope for the future. Ezekiel 16, starting at verse 59, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded, and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. So as a recap to where this chapter has gone, God served Israel divorce papers. He said, you've broken your covenant with me, so now you're going to face life without me. And it's been a brutal chapter. But now, at the end of this chapter, he says something so gracious, I don't even really understand it in my head. Like my brain, it really cannot comprehend the tonal shift that was right here from what came before. God told them, you might have forgotten your covenant with me, but I'll remember my covenant with you. So here's what it means that God is going to remember his covenant. God says, I will restore you. I'm going to bring you back from your destitute state. It goes to show that just because God judges someone and has to punish or to discipline them, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love them. Like God has to bring the hammer down because that's what's best for that person or nation. Everything God does is based on a love relationship, even with people who don't love him. Jesus loved everyone. You remember, Jesus yelled at some people. Jesus got mad at some people. But Jesus was not mad because he didn't love them. He got mad because he did. Jesus wanted to get them to wake up and recognize where they went wrong. I don't believe that Jesus raised his voice at times because he was just emotional and out of control. I believe that whenever Jesus was stern, it's because sometimes we are so hard-headed, it takes a stern message to get our attention. Sometimes a soft voice just doesn't do the trick. And sometimes God can get our attention in a gentle way. And sometimes it takes a sledgehammer. I don't think God likes getting out his sledgehammer unless he has to. Everything God does is in love, even when it hurts. That's why it's called a refining fire, not a refining pillow fight. God has to get my impurities out one way or another, because he loves me too much to leave me the way I am. But after all that, God restores. And that's one thing that this passage tells us. And another is that God tells Jerusalem, she will someday be ashamed of how she's acted. Now, that's important to remember. Uh, we think in modern times that it's just so wrong to offend somebody, that it's so wrong to cause shame, that it's so wrong to make someone feel bad. But God says, I'm going to bring you to such a place of godliness that you look back on your past behavior and are ashamed of it, that you're embarrassed. And, and that's probably a good test for salvation. Like if, if you've been saved for at least a year or more, 
do you look back on your past self and kind of like wince, you know? And if you don't, how can you say that you've been sanctified at all? Like sanctification, that is a process of becoming more Christ-like. It's, it's spiritual fruit and it's proof of salvation. This is how you, you know, what, what we, when we talk about a salvation test, the Bible says the proof that's in the pudding is, are you being sanctified? If you haven't changed ever since you got saved, or if you haven't changed throughout your life and become more godly and less selfish and grown in self-control, I mean, how can you say that you're being sanctified? So coming to a higher place of Christ-like mentality, it means that you look back on your past sins and you feel regret over them. You know, I'm not saying condemnation, okay? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus forgave us. He set us free. I'm not saying that you should feel condemned, but you should feel some, some embarrassment, at least, at how you used to be, if you're truly growing, right? Let me read that last line one more time. This is such an amazing line here. And this is in Old Testament. This is in Ezekiel. This is an angry, <laughs> angry sexual raw chapter of the Bible. And here is something beautiful that God says, it, you know, here at the end of all that, that last line of the chapter, when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. God says that he will atone for your sins. He will. God will. And God did. I mean, that's a literal cross-reference right there, that God came to this earth as Jesus. He died for our sins. He atoned for us and made our way to go to heaven. At the end of this angry, angry chapter, God comes in with a message of atoning for our sins and that he himself is going to do it. You know, each one of us, we may not have done the things that Jerusalem or Sodom, or Samaria had done, but we were heading for the same hell that they were. We deserved the same hell that they had earned for themselves. I mean, we have no grounds to judge them. My own sins, they were enough to, co to condemn me worse than anything God did to ancient Israel. But God came down, and God atoned for me. And if I read the whole sentence, you'd see these words, then you will know that I am the Lord. God remembers, God restores, God atones, and now I can know him as the Lord. Okay, and that wraps up the end of the chapter. And uh, you might have noticed that was a little bit new, uh, some music, I got some new music, because, okay, it's a new year, I'm in a new house, a new stage of life, so I thought it's time to finally update some of these music beds that I use in my transitions. I've had the same ones for over 50 episodes, so uh, that's, that's my little jingle there for getting to the end of a chapter. We finished up Ezekiel 16. I can tell this is going to be a long lesson. Uh, I, I'm probably only about halfway through all my notes, and uh, the, you know, I, the thing is, um, I got to do a mailbag. I mean, I finally, finally, finally am going to do a mailbag sec section today. Uh, and I'm only doing it right now, even though this is already a long enough lesson. I'm doing it because I said last time that I would do the mailbag this time. <laughs> so that's what's, that's what's blowing out the episode this week. But anyway, I really wanted to get to these mailbag questions. Listen, 
last time the episode was it was still over an hour just on its own without a mailbag. So I put I saved them for this time. But honestly, we had an explosion of mailbag questions here with cross references lately. And more we've had more questions in the past couple months than in the entire life of the podcast. Ever since I did those episodes with my friend Daniel Moore uh, back in they aired in I think November. But ever since then, we've seen an increase in interaction and listenership. And thank you for that. I really appreciate that. And so, hey, welcome to the podcast if you're new. But uh, And if you didn't listen to that episode with Daniel Moore, that was episodes 47 and 48 of the podcast. He has a podcast of his own. It's called Connecting the Gap. And it's located everywhere that you can find my podcast. You can find his too. I was just listening to his Christmas episode. And I think it was his best episode ever. Like, go check it out on Connecting the Gap. It's called, uh, it's episode 97, The Hope That Doesn't Float. I mean, it was a Christmas episode, like I said. Even if it's not Christmas time, it, that episode would be excellent any time of the year. So, honestly, go check it out. Like, it almost made me cry a few times. It was a, it was a really powerful episode. So, anyway, um, as I said, I've been moving lately. And so, I kind of explained why, my li- why this episode's been a little bit delayed. Um, be praying for my finger that it just heals back right. Uh, I'm kind of wor- worried about it because I, because my finger got smashed, so it it should be healing up fine, but it just looks really gross. So, be praying for me that all that just gets back to normal and that my life gets resettled and that I can just stay continuous here with this show because I really do love doing the cross references podcast. And um, anyway. If I do need to take another week off after this, it's just because I'm still getting stuff put away. But I will be back in February, if not sooner. Um, you know, if we're all still here, if the rapture hasn't happened yet, which, which you know, hey, it could come at any moment. That's what I believe. And so that's what Daniel Moore believes, too. And that's what we did a couple podcast episodes a few months back, and we were talking about that. And so those were 13 reasons that we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. All right. A lot of Christians out there believe in the rapture. I mean, I would say all Christians believe actually in a rapture. The issue where we argue a lot about it is when it comes to the timing of the rapture. So I'm saying all that because that's what introduces this mailbag today. Okay, our first one today, it it comes from an anonymous listener. um, And that's okay if you want to send an email or something or, or leave a comment. You don't have to put your name on it. I'm just glad you tuned in. So that's fine. But anyway, they're anonymous. But the, So Anonymous says, the rapture isn't biblical. The end. That's all I got from him. <laughs> just, just four words, okay? The rapture isn't biblical. And so just, that doesn't give me a whole lot to work with, all right? <laughs> I do want to respond to the mailbag questions, guys, or comments. I, I want to respond, but that doesn't give me a lot to work with there. So Daniel and I, like I said, between those two episodes, we had 13 reasons that we believe in a pre-trib rapture. And we had Bible verses for like every single one of them. But, okay, Anonymous here says that the rapture isn't biblical. So I'm just gonna say this for, if you do leave feedback, let me just say, and I'd love to interact with your feedback, but please always give reasons. (laughs) Give give me something here. Give me some kind of argument to work with. Because I, you know, The way I interact with people, I kind of pace myself with the energy that someone else is giving me. So, you know, if you're not going to put a lot of effort into your response, then I might not give a lot of effort in my response 
to your response. So this guy sent me four words. The rapture isn't biblical. Four words. That's all I got. So I responded with four words. Okay. Here is what I said in response. What happened to Enoch? That's all I sent back. What happened to Enoch? Now, why did I say that? And I'm sharing all this because I'm trying to be instructive to you all today, okay? I said, what happened to Enoch? Well, let's answer that question from the Bible. Genesis 5.24. It says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So for Enoch, it says he was there, and suddenly he was not. That he just disappeared from this earth, and that he just went straight to heaven. That Enoch never died. He just got teleported up to heaven one day. He was, and then he was not. So, what happened to Enoch? Well, <laughs> we have a word for that. It's called a rapture. It's when someone goes to heaven without dying. That their body, it's just taken straight to heaven. It doesn't experience a natural death. So, um, that's, why did I respond to that message with pointing out Enoch? Well, it's because this person said to me, the rapture is unbiblical. So I showed a place where the rapture happens in the fifth chapter of the Bible. He said, or she, that this concept of a person being teleported to heaven without dying, that that's not biblical, that that's not an idea in the Bible. It's actually in the fifth chapter. It's actually in other places too. I think, okay, I've heard it said before that there's seven raptures spoken of in the Bible. Like, I've heard that from a few different Bible teachers over the years. I, you know, I need to double check that, like the exact number, how many it is. But yes, the rapture is biblical. And that goes back to what I said before. Basically, all Christians believe in the rapture. They just disagree with the timing of it, especially as it relates to us, the church. So, but this, you know, it just kind of goes to show the ignorance of some of those people who reject a pre-tribulation rapture theology. I'm not saying every Christian who rejects pre-trib rapture, I'm not saying that they're all ignorant, okay? So don't misunderstand me. Like, there's many of them out there who have deeply thought this out. They have scholarly reasons for not accepting it. And, I, like, I don't have a problem with them, you know. But sometimes you see this, like, knee-jerk reaction from people whenever you bring the rapture up, and they just jump to saying, well, that's not biblical. And so that's why I pointed out Enoch, okay? Because, of course, it's biblical, like, and I'm not trying to use it as a gotcha. I'm just trying to highlight the lack of thought that some people put into their arguments when they say that they don't believe in the rapture. Not saying all people who don't agree with you know me on rapture theology. I'm not saying they're all ignorant. I'm not saying none of them have put thought into it. I'm just saying like there's sometimes you just get this knee-jerk reaction from people and it just shows they just say that because they heard it from someone else. They haven't really thought about it throughout, you know, throughout scripture. So he never responded to me <laughs> about what happened to Enoch. And, and probably, you know, if he did, what would he have said? Well, Enoch wasn't raptured. He just went to heaven without dying. Well, <laughs> you know, that's a rapture. So that's probably why he didn't respond. Anyway. Okay. The next mailbag, it comes from another anonymous person, and he's also responding to the rapture episode. So he asks, why does so many Christians believe in the rapture on the basis that God will protect us from suffering when the Bible says many times that we'll all experience suffering. So that I wanted to, you know, I wanted to highlight that one too, because that's a very common rebuttal 
to rapture theology. And I want to take a few moments to address it. And this is where it becomes really important to pay attention to our vocabulary, because it's very true that the Bible often says we will all experience suffering. It's a normal part of the human experience. You know, even if you're a Christian, yes, we will all go through suffering in life. And the Bible does not say that God is necessarily going to prevent us from experiencing suffering as we live in this world. But again, we need to pay attention to vocabulary. Daniel and I, we did not say that God will rapture us before the tribulation to protect us from suffering. What we said was that God is not pouring out his wrath on us. It's his wrath that we are protected from. Because that's what the tribulation is. The tribulation is God's wrath being poured out on the earth. And the purpose of God's wrath, it's stated very clearly throughout the book of Revelation. It's to get people to wake up and repent and get saved. The point of the wrath is to give humanity one last chance to get saved. So whenever it comes to this question of the timing of the rapture, I don't say that Christians would go before the tribulation just to protect us from suffering. I say it's because it would protect us from God's wrath. That's because Jesus already took God's wrath for me when he died on the cross. If God, if God poured out his wrath on me a second time in the tribulation, like that would just be overkill. Jesus already died for my sins. I accepted his atonement. I made him my Lord. So there's no reason for God to torture me unnecessarily just to try and get me to repent. Like I've already repented. So it only makes sense that the rapture would be before the tribulation. Now, until then, we might face other types of suffering in this world, but we won't have to face the wrath of God. All right, there's another mailbag that we got from someone named Philip Evans. And so Philip literally gave us 13 reasons that the rapture will not be before the tribulation. <laughs> I just wanted to mention that, Philip, and I really appreciate the effort you put into your response and, and okay, I'm already, according to my clock, I'm like 45 minutes into this episode. So I want to save that for another time. Like, I'm not saying I'm ignoring Philip. I just, I'm just afraid this episode, it's already going too long. And I don't want to rush in my response to Philip. So I'm going to drop that feedback into my folder for like the next episode or two. I'll, I'll try to get into it then. But thanks for your, thanks, Philip. And just sit tight on that. Um, okay, I had a comment here from... As it's signed, it's Reverend Dr. Daryl Schroeder, okay? So here's what he says. Hello. No rapture, but ascension for those of all religions who have earned immortality after completing their cycle of spiritual evolution on the earth, for which we have all signed up. Blessings, Reverend Dr. Daryl Schroeder. So, Daryl, that is not my view. Like what you just described, what you just described is more of a universalist view, this idea that all religions just go to heaven. And the thing is, that's an idea that's, that's actually incompatible with just about every religion that's out there. Like if, it, okay, it, and think about it this way. If universalism was true, if all roads lead to heaven, then it wasn't even necessary for Jesus to come to the earth in the first place. Like why come and die for all of our sins if everybody's just going to go to heaven anyway? So I think it's actually kind of offensive to God 
to tell him, well, hey, God, thanks for coming down to this earth and, and getting torn apart on a cross for us. But, you know, I think we all would have figured it out on our own. Uh, as Dr. Darrell said it, you know, the, our cycle of spiritual evolution, we've all signed up for it. We're all going to figure it out anyway. Thanks for doing all that for us, God. But, you know, we're, we're going to get it. We're going to get it done on our own anyway. If you were to say that to God, like that's actually kind of a slap in the face to God. <laughs> and, and that right there, that's an example of how universalism, it sounds so nice, you know, to say that everybody goes to heaven. They earn their way or they figure it out. You know, everybody lives happily ever after. Well, that sounds nice, but it's actually deeply offensive toward God. And, and that's what I'd say to you, Reverend Dr. Darrell, that when it comes to getting into heaven, the person you want to make happy is God, not, not us. Don't worry about being nice to us. We want to please God. All right, well, I'm going to do one or two more today. Like I said, I got a lot of mailbag things to get to, so we'll save the rest for next time. Got one from someone named Mike, okay? Mike says, Jesus said he will raise us up on the last day, not 3.5 or 7 years prior. So um, let me, and so to just respond to that, Mike, um, what Mike's referring to is John 6:40. This is where Jesus said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So, um, okay, whenever you read that, that Jesus will raise us up at the last day, I guess what I'd say to Mike first, I'd say, when do you believe that that day is? Um, so to me, as I read that, what I think Jesus is trying to communicate is the idea that any, everybody who puts their trust in him, that they are going to live forever with him in heaven up until the, the last day of humanity. And so, which could mean the last day before the millennial kingdom begins um, or the last day of the millennial kingdom. But either way, like regardless of when someone thinks the last day is, okay, I'm sure we all agree some people are going to be in heaven by that point already. Like, there's some people who went to heaven that died thousands of years ago. There's some people who are going to die in the future and go to heaven. There's some people who will die today and go to heaven. But they are all going to have eternal life at the last day. Nobody's going to be forgotten. Like, I think that's what Jesus is saying right there. Okay, I'm sorry if I haven't explained it very well. All my commentaries and stuff, they've been, like, locked away. So I haven't had a lot of time to, to do the research that I would normally do if I could just pull out one of my commentaries on John and look at it. I'm kind of just going off of like shooting from the hip here. So I'm sorry if I'm not explaining it well. But what I, the way I take it that what Jesus is saying right there is that he's saying there, you know, nobody's going to be left behind. That's what I believe Jesus is saying. Okay. There's, there, you know, there's some of those who are raptured and they never, ever died. All right, I don't take Jesus's words in John 6, 40 as like referring to one specific group of people, like just those people who are raptured. I think what Jesus is saying, it applies broadly to all believers who receive eternal life, whether they've already died, whether they're going to die someday, whether they're raptured someday, whether they make it to the end of the tribulation, all of those people, Jesus is going to raise them up at the last day. None of them are going to be left behind. All right even if they're wearing Crocs. Well, I don't know if I want to say that. You know, if you're wearing Crocs, I mean, if, if you're wearing Crocs and the rapture happens, Jesus might just send you back down, okay? I'll, I'll leave that in there because you might ask, where do I see that in the Bible? And I don't have a chapter and verse to give you on that, but 
like I said, my commentaries, they're locked away, but just take my word for it. Don't say I didn't warn you. Then there's this one last message I wanted to get to today, and then we'll move on. Um, this is from, I guess it's anonymous here, but um, this, was, this was a comment that was left on my YouTube video about the 70 weeks of Daniel. That was episode 50. And so I don't have a name for this person, but I really appreciated what they said. So they said, great video, dear brother. I just found your channel by chance as it came to my feed. I was talking about the abomination of desolation just yesterday, and I wanted to start my own study of Revelation and Daniel. By the weekend, God willing. And I'd like to share my opinion about the false messiah, the Antichrist, and I wonder what you'll think about it. Like you said, we are not sure that he's Roman or Muslim, but the more I thought about it and read the scripture, what the Lord Jesus said in the Gospels and in Matthew 24, he says, false Christ will appear, which indicates more than one. And he says, if they tell you he's here in the desert, don't go there. If they say he's here in the secret chambers, don't go there, which also kind of shows like two false Christs. And it actually would fit that the Jews are still waiting for a Jewish Messiah, son of David, and the Muslims are waiting for Issa, the Messiah, to return and make everyone Muslim. And I don't know how much you're aware of Islam eschatology. I'm Armenian, Iraqi. Uh, I was born and grew up in Iraq. And I know a lot and watch their imams' videos and what they're preparing and everything. And I'm watching closely all the news, especially about Israel. It's amazing how we're seeing everything unfold before our eyes. I'll be following your studies and congrats on Milestone 50 epi 50th episode. And Lord bless you and keep you and your family and loved ones and keep you all in his care. In Jesus' holy name we pray. So um, I wanted to read that whole comment. It just kind of, you know, it, that was a very meaningful comment to hear on there. And I just want to let you know, you know, my friend, that uh, I appreciate your message. I think anybody who grows up in Iraq and then turns their life over to Jesus, that, that right there is an inspiration to all of us. Because you know, I just know that, that can't be an easy thing. Uh, you know, it must be a very difficult country over there to be a Christian. And so I think my heart just goes out to you, and I'm sure everyone listening, uh, thank you for sharing that with us. And um, I, I think you're right on track about kind of this whole thing about Muslim eschatology. I mean, I obviously don't know as much about it, uh, you know, Muslim eschatology as you do, because I haven't grown up in the area that you did. And, um, and I won't have the experience with it that you do. But I'll just say from what I've studied on this subject, I do believe that the Antichrist is going to fulfill the eschatological expectations of a lot of different religions, you know, and so I, I hope that was easy enough to follow for everyone. But like, if you're confused, eschatology, I always struggle with saying that word properly. It's eschatology is the word that means studying the end times. And so lots of different religions out there, like maybe all of them out there, they have some kind of eschatology or end times expectation. And oftentimes this element that you see is that there's going to be the appearance of some kind of great world leader. And so to me, you know, as I read and study that, I'm thinking, well, all false religions come from Satan. So as far as I'm concerned, like he's deceived people into looking for some kind of peacekeeper, some kind of amazing leader, and that's actually going to be the Antichrist. And so I think this world is primed and ready for the appearance of the Antichrist. Like no matter what religion they follow, they're all looking for somebody to come along who's going to meet that expectations. I think I got into that topic already in a few episodes. Um, episode 26, that was about the first horseman of the apocalypse. 
episode 12. Uh, go check those episodes out. Episode 12 was about mass formation psychosis. If anyone's interested in those topics, um, I would direct them to those episodes. And, and again, to my friend there on YouTube, thanks for sharing a little bit of your story with us. And it, it just kind of warmed my heart. And I think you're on the right track with a lot of your thoughts. And it, I mean, it goes along with a lot of th the thoughts that I had too. I'm not some expert. It's just as I read the Bible and try to discern what's going on in the world around me, like with all these other religions, you know, I kind of see it that way too. And so I appreciate the positive comment. Um, on most of the mailbag responses that I get are actually positive. And I just, I don't usually read them because I don't want to look like I'm just trying to toot my own horn. <laughs> but uh, like, okay, so uh, someone over in Nepal, they said, it's, it's very clearly explained. Thank you so much. Blessed teaching about the 70 weeks plan of God. So they also commented there on, the episode about the 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel, uh, episode 50. So, you know, I just, I do appreciate those positive feedback responses, guys. And um, I just want you to know, I see that and I do appreciate it. Uh, they, that was, again, someone from a church in Nepal. But um, thank you for that. And I have some more mailbags to get to. I, like I said, I'm just going to stop there. There's a guy named Michael, T. McGee, Lori, Philip, Greg. I see all your messages. Thanks for reaching out. I'm going to go ahead and try to get through my last section of today's episode. And so sometime in February, I will get to, <laughs> I will get to all your comments too. And if, if anyone out there wants to send another comment, um, a question, some kind of feedback you'd like to include in the show, crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you and I will, I will respond whenever I can, if, you know, if possible. Um, so thank you again for all your, your comments, everybody. All right, well, let's get into a controversy before we go. All right, and so now, you know, an hour, <laughs> almost an hour into this whole show, let's get into finally what the title of this episode is about. What was the sin of Sodom? If my voice can hold out through all this, um, this is a bit of a controversial issue for reasons that I've already mentioned a few times so far. So uh, let me reread the verses that came up earlier regarding the sin of Sodom. So this was Ezekiel 16, verses 49 and 50. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty, and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. There's many of those on the liberal Christian movement today, and they like to say that this verse means that God was not upset with Sodom and Gomorrah over the rampant homosexuality that was going on there. And they say this because what they like to do is try to take every single passage in the Bible that talks about homosexuality being sinful and they try to find some way to nullify it. And there's at least seven passages in Scripture that outlaw homosexuality. Uh, six of them are explicit, and they say things like, those who commit the sin of homosexuality, that they deserve death, or that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then the seventh one that's pointed to is the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. And which, again... That, that story doesn't specifically say that homosexuality is a sin, but it does seem to portray pretty clearly that the homosexuals there in Sodom, they're very predatory and evil. 
And this is like an example of why the city, the, Sodom and Gomorrah, why they had to be destroyed. So Ezekiel 16 comes up a lot as a way of nullifying the passage on Sodom. And then they have ways of trying to reinterpret all the other passages too. Um, I saw recently there's this false teacher who's been getting more and more of a following on Twitter. And he's a, I mean, this is a heretic, okay? Total false, I won't say false prophet, but a false teacher. His name is Kevin M. Young. And not to be confused with the great pastor Kevin D. Young, Kevin M. Young is a false teacher who's been gaining gaining a following on social media lately, especially above the progressive crowd. And so he said this recently. He put this on Twitter. Christian, it is time to publicly admit that the sin of Sodom was not homosexuality. A clear reading of Scripture easily shows this. What isn't easy is admitting we were wrong and admitting why we wanted to be right. And if it, I went back a few months ago on Twitter, it was kind of interesting. I saw that Sodom and Gomorrah was trending on Twitter. <laughs> I'm kind of like, well, that's, that's kind of odd. Like, why? So I clicked on the trending tab, and there was this whole discussion going on on Twitter about Ezekiel 16. I'm not kidding. Uh, someone named, I don't know if the names matter, someone named Jennifer, she puts, a little reminder that this is why Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. And then she posted a picture, uh, just a screenshot, of Ezekiel 16. And I'll read some more comments. A guy named Paul, he says, If you actually know the Bible, the greatest sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was not caring for the poor among them. If a priest wants to reference Sodom and Gomorrah in his homily, then he should explain how the sins which brought God's wrath had nothing to do with homosexuality. An account called the USA Singers, I have no idea who they are, they say, Christian nationalists think the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is about homosexuality, when in fact it's about the evils of greed and selfishness. That's because Christian nationalists are greedy, selfish, illiterate, homophobic, brainwashed, bigoted, bad word, superstitious, moron cultists. <laughs> um, someone named uh, Cassio, if I'm saying that right, they, they posted Ezekiel 16 too. They said, not that it would make much difference, but it might be fun if more people reminded folks who scream about Sodom and Gomorrah of what exactly those cities were doing wrong and then posted the Ezekiel 16 verses. Someone named the progressive Texan. They say, why does the atheist have to point out that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because their conservative leadership refused to provide aid to the poor? <laughs> it certainly wasn't because doctors were providing gender-affirming care. Okay, so I'm going to stop there with all those. <laughs> so I did, that last one was just so ridiculous. I'm not even going to get into all that. Can we use Ezekiel 16 to contradict our traditional understanding of what sodomy is? That's the question I want to talk about before we go. And so I would say this. If Ezekiel 16 was the only passage in the entire Bible that described the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, in that case, we could pretty easily filter everything we know about Sodom and Gomorrah through this lens, through this chapter. Like, if that were the case, then we probably could conclude that Sodom's homosexual citizens didn't have anything to do with why God destroyed them. 
I mean, or at the very least, it would significantly weaken that case. You know, if we said that God's displeasure with them, that it had nothing to do with homosexuality. Again, if Ezekiel 16 is the only chapter in the whole Bible that talks about the sins of Sodom, then yes, that's what we could conclude. But, turns out, Ezekiel 16 is not the only chapter of the Bible that references Sodom. Sodom is actually mentioned quite a bit in Scripture. And it's, you know, it's interesting that progressive Christians, they want to focus just on Ezekiel 16 as if that is all that matters. But if we're going to be intellectually consistent, then we need to look at all the chapters and all the places that talk about Sodom. Not just pick the one that doesn't mention homosexuality specifically and then decide that this is the only one we got to look at to tell us how to think about Sodom. Okay, for example, Jude 7. It reads, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Jude 7 says that they pursued unnatural desire and it called their sin sexual immorality. Now, the, you know, the, uh, some liberal or progressive Christians, they have tried to get around this by saying that the sin of Sodom was that they, it was because they were trying to pursue sex with angels and that this is what Jude meant when he talked about their unnatural desire. That it doesn't have anything to do with the gender of the angels. It's just that they were punished for desiring angels in the first place. But that interpretation doesn't make sense because the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, they had no idea that the angels were angels. They just thought that they were regular people. So Jude is saying that it was by pursuing male plus male sexual relationships that they were pursuing something that was not natural. And yes, homosexuality appears naturally or in nature, okay? It's a sinful desire that does indeed come naturally to some people. It is a particular temptation for some people. But when the Bible talks about what is natural or unnatural, when it uses those words, what it's talking about is the way that God has ordered creation. So it's what God considers natural. Like there are many things that appear in nature that go against God's intended order for creation. And especially for human beings. <laughs> like just because you can point to something in nature and say, okay, well, therefore it's natural. That doesn't make it okay for humans to do it. <laughs> like, I've heard people do that with, with homosexuality whenever you, when you say that it's unnatural and you mean it in the biblical sense of what the Bible is saying is, is what God says is natural or unnatural. But some people say, well, of course homosexuality, is, is, of course it's natural. You see it in animals all the time. You know, dogs and dolphins and whatever. You know, they, people point to examples of where you can find it in nature, and they say that that means, therefore, it's natural because it's in nature. But that's not what it means when God is talking about, in the Bible, what is natural and unnatural. And also, just because an animal does it, that doesn't mean that it's okay for humans to do it, too. I don't know. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm laughing because I have had to explain this to people before. Okay, there are some spiders who eat their young. Does that mean it's natural if a human mom wants to kill and eat her children? <laughs> I mean, sorry to be kind of ridiculous there in graphic, but just because you see something appearing in nature, it doesn't mean that that means it's part of God's design for the family of human beings. And, and and so to give you a few more reasons, though, that the sin of Sodom, that it's still homosexuality. And I mean, that's one. That Ezekiel 16 is not the only word on the matter. I mean, look at Jude 7. It specifies their sexual immorality. But a second reason that I mean, that I would say the homosexual act, I, I do think you can actually find it there in Ezekiel 16. It's where God said they were haughty and did an abomination before me. I think that word abomination is probably a reference to their homosexual sin. And I say that because homosexual behavior is said to be an abomination before God in Leviticus 18.22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Now, yes, there are a lot of things in the Old Testament that can be considered an abomination. So I'm not saying that's an open and shut case, but you know, I'm just saying I think homosexuality does fit into that statement that you find in Ezekiel 16 about that they committed an abomination. I think you could point to that right there as an example. Um, but let's ask the question, why didn't God mention homosexuality specifically right here in Ezekiel 16? Maybe, and I'm, I'm just throwing this out, like, I think that is a good question why that didn't come up specifically, but maybe because it wasn't really relevant with, as God's making these comparisons with Jerusalem, okay? Because that is the intended audience of who God's talking to right here. And I'm, say, I'm saying perhaps ancient Jerusalem at this time of Ezekiel, with all of its problems that it had going on, perhaps it did not really have an issue with homosexual activity at that time. Like, maybe that just wasn't one of the big issues going on in Jerusalem in those final days of Jerusalem. But God still says, that doesn't make you better than Sodom, because you're still just as prideful as Sodom was. You're still neglecting the poor just as badly as Sodom did. So don't pat yourself on the back just because you don't have gay rapists in your neighborhood. You still have a lot of other problems too. You're just as bad as Sodom. That, like, that, I, that's what I think God is actually trying to say here in Ezekiel 16. If that's what's going on, you know, then, then it makes perfect sense why God left homosexuality out in that chapter. Um, but, but again, this is one of those areas where you just need to read the Bible with some common sense. <laughs> you know, just because I didn't mention the homosexuality sexuality right here in Ezekiel 16, it's still all through a lot of other chapters and verses in the Bible that it's, that it's a sin that is bad in God's sight. So just because it's like not in this one chapter doesn't mean that we can <laughs> just use that as evidence that God doesn't really care about that. You know, if I said on Monday that Hitler was evil because he tried to wipe out the Jews. And then I said on Tuesday that Hitler was evil because he tried to wipe out the Jews. And then I said on Wednesday that Hitler was evil because he tried to wipe out the Jews. And then we get to Thursday and I'm like, yeah, that Hitler, he was so evil that he started World War II. Now, if I said that, does it really make sense to reply to me, well, yeah, but what about what he did to the Jews? You didn't mention the Jews. Well, maybe I didn't mention it on Thursday, but I mentioned it on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. <laughs> it's like, okay, 
That's the same logic you have to look at with this, with the whole sin of Sodom thing. Sure, there's one chapter in the Bible that doesn't mention the weird sexual stuff going on over there when it talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, but it still does a bunch of the other times. <laughs> does that mean that God's just cool with sexual immorality now? Does that mean that we just don't use any common sense whenever we read Ezekiel 16? Do we just like forget the rest of the Bible and just look at this one chapter? And I mean, people try to make a big deal about the word interpretation sometimes. Well, like when the Bible often doesn't leave anything open to interpretation. You know, you say that homosexuality is a sin and some people are like, well, that's, that's just your interpretation of those verses. And I'm like, no, it's not my interpretation. Like, I'm just reading what it says. <laughs> There's not really any interpreting going on. I'm, I'm reading English and understanding it as English. Or, I mean, hey, it's the Bible. We could read it as Greek or Hebrew and understand it as Greek or Hebrew. There's not really a lot of interpreting going on. You're just reading what the words on the page say. So watch out for people who are like, well, you know, we all have our own interpretations. I'd say, no, you're not in entitled to your own interpretation of the Bible. We use principles and rules and processes to logically and consistently derive the meaning of the text. That doesn't mean that we always get it right. Okay, we're all fallible human beings, but we do have to have a process. Like, we can't just make it up as we go along. And so there are rules of interpretation you can follow, and especially on this issue of, of homosexuality, I mean, it's, it's as clear as day. It, there are six very clear admonitions or prohibitions, we might say, about homosexuality in the scriptures, clear as day. And if those are not good enough for some people, if they try to w find a way to weasel out of all six of those, and seven, you know, if we throw in Sodom and Gomorrah's story too, if someone find, wants to find a way to, to weasel out and try to reinterpret all of those, it wouldn't matter if God gave them an eighth or a ninth or a tenth one. They would find a way to weasel out of that too. They just don't want to accept what the Bible says. And that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. And, and to those of us who are not these progressive activists who only seem to want to care about this like one chapter in the Bible <laughs> as, it, as it refers to Sodom and Gomorrah, I would just say this, you know, to those of us who are not like them, still... Let's not get prideful about ourselves. That, that, let's remember, that's the, that's the lesson we're supposed to take away from Ezekiel 16. Now, we might be right about how we read the Bible because we actually read it. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying these progressive Christians are saved. Like, I'm sure most of them are not. But we can't let that make us feel like we're all good just because we get this part of the Bible right, okay? We still have to make sure that we don't have planks in, in other parts of our eyes. Uh, Joel Richardson is a Bible prophecy teacher as someone else that I follow on Twitter. He's a good one to follow. And he, he, made, he made a comment recently that I really appreciated. He said, since we all live in Sodom, let us never think to ourselves, you know, I'm actually doing pretty good compared to everyone else I know. Man, that was such a great quote. Because um, it's, a, it's a trap that we can all fall into. As we look around us, and I've mentioned this evil society that we're in, and it would be so easy just to look around at everyone else and think, well, well, most guys watch porn every day, so I'm not so bad if I just pull it up every month or so. If we have that attitude, that is haughtiness. That is pride. That's arrogance. 
Or if we say, well, well, most people lie all the time. So-and-so gossips all the time. My pastor does this or that. It must be okay if I do it a little bit too. No, our standard is not other people. Not, not even our pastors. Our pastors, they're just human beings. Our standard is the Word of God. We're supposed to be Christ-like. We're not supposed to be pastor-like. Okay, we're not just supposed to be better than the Christian sitting on the other side of the pew. I mean, it's arrogance to compare ourselves to others and then to try to use that to excuse our own sins. So I'm going to leave us today with the admonition that I think that God was leading Israel to with chapter 16. Take some time for self-reflection. Like we can way too easily focus on and notice other people's sins. And, And I challenge you today to try to care more about your own than anyone else's. That's what I'm going to try to do in the days ahead. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you that Enoch was raptured, and you could be too, as long as you're not wearing Crocs.